Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Maurice Sendak is often celebrated for his contributions to children's book art. You've probably reread Where the Wild Things Are or even Higgledy Piggledy Pop. But in the late artist's own words, I do not believe that I have ever written a children's book. I don't know how to write a children's book. How do you write about it? How do you set out to write a children's book? a lie. This hour, we're exploring Sendak's legacy with the people behind the Maurice Sendak Foundation in Ridgefield. There, the many layers of his artistic legacy lives on, thanks to the experts and friends who knew and loved him best. And joining us now is Lynn Cabanera. She's the executive director at the Maurice Sendak Foundation. Thank you, Lynn, for joining us today. Our pleasure. And also with us is Dr. Jonathan Weinberg, who's the curator and director of research at the Maurice Sendak Foundation. Thank you so much, Dr. Weinberg, for being with us today. Oh, it's great to be here. And listeners, we would love to know what has Maurice Sendak's art meant to you. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And if you want to see lovely images um, from the foundation, you can check them out at ctpublic.org slash where we live. So kind of need to tell a story from the beginning, uh, Jonathan and Lynn. You know, can you take us back to the beginning? You know, how and when did you each first meet Maurice? Lynn, let's start with you. Yeah, um, well, Maurice sort of... uh moved into our neighborhood. <laughs> he and his partner, Eugene Glenn, uh, moved, uh, purchased the house in 1971 and moved in a little later that year, or maybe the beginning of 72. Correct, Jonathan? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, he, uh, he, I was 11 years old. His, uh, my main draw to Maurice, because I did not know what he did for a living is that they immediately bought puppies, uh, a German shepherd named Erda and a, and a golden retriever named EO. So I was just over there every day. Well, that will get uh, anyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you have puppies, you know, and you're an adolescent girl, you're, you're there. Um, and, and my brother had actually, he was living there at the time as well because he was the previous owner's uh, caretaker. So, you know, we all just sort of became one big happy ish family. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so it's been, uh, it was for 40 years, I was, I was in the house with Maurice and, uh, and Eugene, and uh, it was the most exasperating and wonderful experience that anybody could wish for. (laughs) Well, Jonathan, were puppies involved when you met Maurice? No, well, you know, it's interesting, because I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was meeting Maurice in 1967. And that's just at the point when his dog Jenny um, has died. And that and Higgly Piggly Pop is, is a book that's about that I was 10 years old at a party. I have, 
I, it's one of those things where you have absolute proof because I have a drawing that he gave me of a lion that subsequently um, got coffee or well, probably wasn't coffee. It was probably Coca-Cola on it, which <laughs> kind of makes it look expressive. But anyway, his um, his partner, Eugene Glenn, who was a psychiatrist, was my mother's best friend. They were kids at school together in Passaic, New Jersey. And uh, my father died when I was quite young, when I was six. And my mother died actually when I was 15. So Jean and and Marie sort of were like my surrogate parents. And I I often would stay at the house in the in the summer and always on weekends. Jean commuted back and forth from New York because he had a they had an apartment in New York as well, New York City. And um anyway, so I sort of grew up grew up with them. But um, so so we kind of think of ourselves as part of Maurice's extended family. But um, but the other the other thing to say is that Lynn is one of the most modest people. I mean, she was really Maurice's um, right hand person. I mean, assistant and work with publishers and just knows so so much about the whole industry and and really what Maurice's taste is like well, how he would crop a picture or how what colors he would use so mm -hmm. i think that's very important and i i was trained as an art historian i went to graduate school in art history you eugene gene was a a, a a practicing psychiatrist but he also was an art historian and an art critic so yeah. um, didn't Maurice give you your first watercolor set? He did. He gave me his first, my first watercolor set. Yeah. And um, so I have this sort of weird pressure on me because I'm a painter as well as an art historian. And I have always done both those things and um, show my work in, in galleries and things like that. So, you know, I'm a practicing painter. I like to say I'm not just somebody who does it on the weekends. So I think I'm always sort of torn between those these two yeah. incredibly powerful um, influences on me, both Maurice and Jean. Well, this sounds like a beautiful sandwich to be a part of. And, and we're just grinning ear to ear hearing that Maurice gave you your, your first set of wa watercolors. And, and it's a perfect transition because, because I did want to ask, you know, Maurice had this interview before when he was asked, who is Lynn to you? And he said, she's everybody. She's everything. She's the most devoted friend I have. So I'm curious to hear from both of you about how you see this sort of balance blending between your own very personal, very beautiful connection to Maurice and to your own artistic, ex you know, expertise and experience. You know, Lynn, let's start with you. Yeah. Um, well, I think my my sort of uh, main challenge of being part of this this wonderful group is that. Uh, I think my my uh, kind of I, I don't even want to say expertise, but just sort of knowledge is is how Maurice's book should look, um, and that's just from years and years and years of looking over his shoulder and knowing the right materials to ask for and being able to follow things through. <laughs> and to be honest, you know, we have to say too that publishing <clears throat> has changed quite a bit um, from when Maurice started, and that is um, something that there's there's parts of it that are unfortunate and then there's parts that are wonderful like digital printing now is is amazing we can go back and we can look at Maurice's originals and we can create files for the production of books that are exactly like the originals or what Maurice would have intended um, them to look like because because a lot of the the originals are color separations which you have to you have to sort of in, 
guess what his intentions were because you have color separate not to get too technical but color separations are just sort of a, a guide to what each color should be that they're because they did not print in full color at that point for for picture books um and, and so there's there's ways of 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 uh, which is sort of brings back to the whole idea of how do you protect a legacy you know the 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 thing is, you have to sort of understand the intentions and how you reach the broader audience, you know, because there's 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 a lot of children's books out there that are 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 just you, you can tell that this person who created this book wasn't nurtured in the way that Maurice was nurtured along by Ursula Nurse Nordstrom. Um, he you know, he he had the golden years of picture books where mm -hmm. you really were taken into a craft and you were you were taught along the way how to become a picture book artist. Right. Uh, I, and, I, I, just to jump in, Ursula Nordstrom was Maurice's first uh, uh, great editor, editor, and she's kind of a legendary mm -hmm. figure. She was the editor for um, E.B. White, Charlotte's Web, and right. Harriet the Spy, and mm -hmm. I mean, exactly. just amazing person yeah. who um, sort of took him under under his wing. Well, in the fifties, nineteen fifties, right? And then, Lynn, you because you, you talked about sort of the intricacies of of publishing, and and we will want to get into sort of how that has evolved over the years, because you know we yeah. as audiences certainly have seen that changed. So I'm curious to hear, you know, you know, there's this balance, I think that was trying to that I think Maurice was trying to to get between the high bar that he set for himself in terms of mm -hmm. his sort of his artistry, the rigor of his artisticness and of his books, and how that was you know meeting that commercial demand that you're talking about to make sure that these books are being read, are distributed and accessible to people and and children. And you've said before, Jonathan, that that he saw that this was what was perfect versus what was possible. You know, can you talk about that, right. Jonathan? Uh, right. I, I would say, you know, you said that you said s so many great things, this idea about rigor. Um, he had a kind of idea of integrity. Um, uh, you know, Lynn has talked about when you when he he, he used to love to weed. Right. He would go out and read in the garden and he and he would say, you know, um, Lynn has told this story. I'm stealing her story. But that he would insist that if you're going to weed, you have to do it the best. You have to become like the best weeder, right? Yeah. So anything that you do, any job you do, has to be done with rigor and integrity. Um, but also, you know, he was. He, I am to think he's one of the great artists of the 20th century, right? One of the great, really great draftspersons, and just amazing. But he also was very commercial. He knew somehow how to get a big audience and. You know, uh, back in the early 60s, if you're going to do a children's book, there's only in terms of full color, it, you were very limited in how to do that mm -hmm. because of the expense of doing color. That's not so much right. true any, anymore. So he had to uh, work within the system in a certain mm -hmm. way. And I think he was always very good at figuring out what was possible, you know, what right. how and how to make the book the best it could be. What one thing that we always trying to remind people is that it's the book that is the work of art, right? It's the final work of art. And often when it was printed, he made adjustments and changes. So we can't just um when we go back to scanning the books and redoing the books to make them as true to the original as possible, we actually have to adjust them to some degree because you can't just copy the book. You have to do things to make them, to, to mm -hmm. try to figure out what was Maurice's intentions. Right, right. Because when you go back to the originals, like Wild Things, 
you know, the paper has yellowed. Mm. So Max's suit is actually actually tan in the original. So you have to right. go back and and adjust it that you uh, you go back to exactly what Maurice would have wanted it to be. And 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 that does come, I mean it it does come from years and years and years of experience of of him working with printers and editors and and knowing where he was wanting this to end up as a final piece of artwork, which is the book, which we, like Jonathan says, we always stress that, that, that it, essentially everybody who has the book in their house or library has the piece of artwork. And that's, that's also sort of, I know we we're not going into the whole production thing quite now, but it's, it's really the root of everything that we deal with is, is making the book look as absolutely beautiful as we can well, and that and that and that actually does happen right in a partnership with with our publisher who is harper collins which really really understands that and they really they go like the extra nine yards to uh if that's the right football analogy perfect timing <laughs> yeah, perfect so, timing yeah there you go uh it, it uh it, it they they want the same thing we want the printers want what we want the marketing people want what we want so it's really, it really has become this extended family of of everybody who has anything to deal with the making of a book, right? And and I think, you know, with, with everything that you just described, to so many people have that piece of art sitting in their bedrooms. It could be yeah. their own copy. It could be when they were children, they had that copy, and they still have that copy as an adult. You know, there's a reason why Maurice is so beloved still, and and his stories are still so. You know, I think we say commercialized like it's a bad thing, but it's. The, I think the positive side is you know more people know of it, more people have it, and and speaking right. on the theme of rigor and and seriousness that we might not give to Maurice's artistry and even to the children that we think he was writing for. And we did hear a clip from him earlier at the top of the hour, basically rejecting the idea that he's ever made a children's book. He's like, I don't know what that looks like and, and what that means. And uh, in an interview well, with Spike it, Jones, um, You know, I, I listened to him say that. And, and yeah. Maurice was, one of the other things about Maurice is that he was incredibly eloquent and told wonderful stories about creativity and about where his ideas came from but but you also have to be careful with it you know and 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 if you look over the years of things that he says on the one hand he'll say he'll say that because i think on some level he's very aware of the fact that the whole definition of what a child is is not concrete it changes constantly over history and um i think somewhere else he says i don't believe in the very idea of children right or or he saw himself in some ways as being a kind of perpetual child, even though he worked harder and more rigorously than any any adult adult could. But um, I would say in other places, he'll talk about how if you're going to make a really good picture book, you you have to keep in mind that kids uh, uh, get bored and you have to make make it so that they'll turn the page. So that doesn't really jive with the idea, yeah, you know, because yeah. he was an incredibly great teacher and he right. taught and and right. mentored as he was mentored a lot of wonderful picture book artists. Yeah. And and he was very aware of the fact that that whatever right. happened, the books were used by children. Yeah, and, um, and Jonathan, how he yeah. used to say, 
where the wild things are is named where the wild things are because he couldn't draw horses because originally right. it was where the wild horses are. Well, Maurice could draw horses beautifully, but it's it's more interesting for him to have said that. So it's it's sort of it's it's a funny it's a he, funny he was a thing. very very funny person, and yeah. he loved to tell funny accessible uh, <clears throat> stories about himself. So yeah, and about yeah. his work. Well, and because this is such a theme, I think for for Maurice and his work, and 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 the, Jonathan, you mentioned earlier the quote that Maurice said. You know, he he said, "I don't believe in children. I don't believe in childhood. I don't believe that there's this demarcation." So I want to ask Lynn, you know, if you can talk about this. You know, we have this tendency to want to compartmentalize the, that childhood wonder and curiosity and imagination. Mm-hmm. And, and and as we're talking about this, I'm reminded by J.M. Barry's Peter Pan that has very similar philo- philosophies behind that story. So I'm curious to hear, you know, how would Maurice have us reframe that? Do you think that that need or 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 maybe pressure to make that demarcation? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to understand uh, that he understood what, who his audience was not that he was specifically you know creating an art piece of art for that audience but that he understood who was going to be looking at it how it was going to be it was going to be portrayed even how it was going to be shelved and sold in a store so you had the right size and he really understood that he he might not have said you know thought liked to think that he wasn't a children's book author but an artist, but he he understood what the end product was. And I mean, just for instance, when I was about, I was a little girl still, maybe, maybe a little older, maybe like 12 or 13, when he started thinking, he was thinking about outside over there for the longest, longest time. And he, we used to go on these daily walks and we would talk about everything from, you know, what's on television to what, what are, what means the most to us in the world. And he asked me once when he was working on outside over there, he said, do you think kids your age and even younger would understand what the word Jubilee means? And I said, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, cause he, he wanted to be sure that he didn't write down to children and try to make it fluffy and cute and fun. He, he wanted to know, make sure you knew that he wanted to know that, okay, will they understand what Jubilee means? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they all would. And I went back to school and I asked them and, and, you know, they said, of course, we know what Jubilee means. So, so it became sort of this, um, uh, him always like sort of questioning ways to figure out how to create something that is for himself, but also is for his audience. Like he would often say, Beatrix Potter wrote, you know, a tale of Peter Rabbit. Well, Peter Rabbit's father on the very first page is dead and in a pie <laughs> that Mrs. McGregor cooked. Right. And he said, you know, he said she didn't talk down to children. She she, she gave the facts in a way that they, he felt and she felt that children would understand the severity of what Peter was going to be doing. And and I think that that's, that's how Maurice sort of worked throughout his career is understanding how children would take something in but also understanding that the impact of of using a certain word has to be thought of really carefully so that it doesn't get lost in the in sort of the translation of the book i do want to take well, I a think quick also there's, a, there's an idea of tr- he would say you tell the truth to children exactly. you know the children he, he was and i think this is so smart he was so aware that often kids keep things from their their parents, right? Um, mm-hmm. 
that they that they pretend not to understand things um uh that they um but but he he didn't want to do that with kids right and uh you know in that in that sense he you know he he shares that idea with mr rogers right it's like you know you can't protect kids from all the terrible things that are going on in the world i mean how how can you possibly do that but you can you owe them honesty and and the reality is is that it's not about kids everybody is deserves that honesty right. that truth right, right. um yeah. and i, I so, do want to i do want to take a quick moment here to remind our listeners that you are free to join the conversation and let us know what has marie sendex art meant to means to you give us a call at 888-720-9677 right now we're going to take a quick call from Mikel, who is calling from new london Mikel, you're on the air I'm a big fan of Maurice, and I wanted to know if, um, if he was alive today, would his books be banned? And if there are, uh, are any of his books and his works being banned today? Thank you very much for taking my call. Well, thank you so much, Mikel, for taking the time and calling us. And Lynn or Jonathan, if you want to take that question, if Maurice was alive yeah. today, you know, would his books be banned and are they banned? Well, well, they were uh you couldn't really say banned during his lifetime, but they sure. were regulated, you know, like put into a different category sometimes. And right now in the night kitchen in Florida is, is taken out of the children's library or it's been put with diapers painted on them. And that, that also happened during Maurice's lifetime. Right. And, and you just have to have faith in the work that it's going to get out there to the, to the people who need to see it. And uh, so, so, I mean, it, well, also, also yeah. the thing that always happens with this kind of thing is that it just makes people more interested. You know, exactly. nothing can make yeah. a child more interested in what's under those diapers, right? Than if you put they're they're not dumb. They see, oh, why? You know, most kids' yeah. books don't have little painted painted diapers on it. So if they see a book with little painted diapers on it, they're going to want to know what's underneath it. And then, of course, then that creates shame and embarrassment mm -hmm. about the body. You know, right. it, it it's. I, I was going to say something also, which it just occurs to me, is that my favorite books are all so-called children's books. My favorite book is is Through the Looking Glass mm -hmm. by Lewis Carroll, and I re I read Harriet the Spy every year. That may say something about my <laughs> my brain, but mm -hmm. um, I think again that um, you know that these these books are so true that they are. That's sort of what Maurice means, you know. Yeah. Um, Anyway, anyway, this idea of censorship, it doesn't work. You know, mm -hmm. that's that's the thing that these people should realize yeah. is that yeah. if you tell people not to read something, they're just going to find it and read it. Well, so, I, so don't and, do and, it. And Maurice had <laughs> illustrated uh, George MacDonald's uh, The Light Princess. Mm. And The Light Princess has a, and nobody bans this book. Maybe they will now. <laughs> You've heard it here Princess, first. Yeah, has, a, has an infant girl with full nudity, full frontal nudity, and, and nobody says a word about it. And Maurice used to say, like, how come they make such a big deal about this not very atomically well-drawn little tiny penis, but they don't care about this full frontal vagina on the flight princess. This so, isn't in the night kitchen that Mickey the, is, is. Mickey has a, has a penis. Well, or, I think, what, I think yeah. Lynn, you just created the next trending topic and we'll be continuing this trending topic after a quick break. You've been listening to Lynn Cabanera, who's the executive director at the Marie Sendak Foundation, as well as Dr. Jonathan Weinberg, who's the curator and director of research at the Marie Sendak Foundation. And we'll continue this wild rumpus after a quick break. 
And listeners, if Marie Sendak's art has touched you, please let us know, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're on a wild rumpus. Marie Sendak lived in Richfield, Connecticut for 40 years. Today, his legacy is being kept alive. 12 years after his death, the Marie Sendak Foundation and Harper's Collins have published 10 Little Rabbits, a picture book billed for young readers. But Sendak's mission was to appeal to a wide audience and not to be banished to kitty book land, as he called it. And here to discuss all of that are Lynn Caponera, who's the executive director at the Marie Sendak Foundation, and Dr. Jonathan Weinberg, who's the curator and director of research at the Marie Sendak Foundation. And so I want to start this conversation by asking both of you to to describe the foundation a little bit more. You know, we know that the New York Times said it was as if Sendak's studio and home had been frozen in amber. So can you tell us about this part of the state before we get to the foundation? Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a job that I I never really understood the magnitude of it till 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 it was thrust upon us, uh, uh, and and it and you know that was from Maurice always saying, "Oh, you'll know what to do," and and it, it, he he was funny because he would say things to me like while he was in the hospital at the end towards the end of his life, "Oh, you're going to have so much free time." Once and I'm like, you know, because he, you know, he was sort of a 24 seven uh, endeavor to to keep going, but uh, himself, but uh, uh, he he was just always going. You're going to have so much free time, and I I think that's because he felt that because he really just sort of relied on everybody else to do the the uh, the business part of of his work. And, and, and now we find we're, we are only three and a three and a half sort of we have three three full-time employees and one half half uh, part-time employee at the foundation and I I've really become uh, aware of how difficult it is 
a struggle financially and just mentally to keep it going in the way we would like it to keep going. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, right now everybody who's connected with the foundation, uh, the board to the employees, numerous except for one employee. And uh, we have to think about the legacy and how how to keep this going beyond us. And, you know, the, it, it's a real daunting task. And I, I have so much respect for other small foundations that that yeah. do it and succeed. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, one, one of the things is that Maurice in his will said that he wanted the house to be a museum and he left all of everything to the to the foundation with the exception of some some art which went to uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and photo uh, photographs and books that he that went to the Rosenbach. Um, but he wanted it to be a museum, but we're not zoned to be a museum. The whole neighborhood is 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 for family houses and and we can only have six people at a time theoretically in the house because of parking. So a museum is not something we can do. And so we've um, so what basically it's open to uh, researchers, artists, um, people who are researching things yeah. about Maurice. Um, but we're we're trying to find different ways to make it accessible virtually. We've already done some uh, videos and talks during COVID um, as ways Ex exhibitions. To yeah, and we have the exhibitions which we're doing. Um, the Columbus Museum of Art did um, organized, uh, which at the time was the largest retrospective of Maurice's work, and that show is going to the Skirb Wall in Los Angeles. And then we'll go to Denver, the Denver Muse Art Museum, where it will be even bigger, much bigger, and will be then will have been the biggest exhibition of Maurice's work, much bigger than anything that was done during Maurice's own lifetime. Yeah, and and, and we are hoping that there'll be a home somewhere on the on the East Coast. There are people in this part of the world in Connecticut will be able to to see Maurice's collection and his work and how it relates to his work and in this in this exhibition we're hoping that yeah, yeah. Museum will yeah. and you get a real sense of of how much the books meant to people when you see them on the wall Jonathan and I were out for the the opening of the Columbus exhibition and we were just sort of blown away by the fact that people were standing in front of the artwork weeping when they were thinking about what this these books meant to them, and it it was just the most amazing experience, and and uh, that's you know not that we want to make America cry, but <laughs> we right. would we yeah. would like we would like to get allow people to kind of get their back to their connection to Maurice through through the work. And uh, another thing that we do is we have a fellowship that started during Maurice's lifetime, yeah. and. Um, Right now, the fellowship, uh, it's a residency for a month, but it doesn't actually happen at the at the house and, and on the property. But we're working on finding ways to have it happen there. So that's something. Yeah. And, um, and, just, and, and Jonathan, just to interrupt you for a second, some of the oh. I mean, the whole idea of the fellowship and how Maurice created it has sort of come full circle in this past year. Um, because we had uh, Doug Salati, who now runs the fellowship uh, uh, for us. He he just won the Caldecott last year for picture bookmaking, and he um, you know he he is the prime example of how being exposed to Maurice's work changes you as an artist. He he got he came back to to after the fellowship and worked for us for a year organizing, help organize Maurice's archive, and he even he, he himself will say that's that's what made him become a picture book artist. So we want to be able to, first of all, you know, let picture book artists and scholars come in 
and see the work and experience it, you know, one-on-one, but also to protect the work because we we understand that Jonathan and I and, and, and our other colleagues, we did like a year's research of going to different houses and museums that were houses. And we realized that you, in, in effect, it's it's very hard not to change the atmosphere of the house when you let a ton of people in. Uh, so it's, it's, it's right, sort you, of a you balancing act. To kind of ruin it. And um, so much of the house was inspiration from Maurice's work. So it's really a kind of work of art in and of itself that we are sort of preserving at the same time. I I think in a general way, we want to sort of spread the philosophy of Murray Sendak that or the, you know, a bit of the mentoring that he gave us. Yeah, I I think that's sort of the way that we see our role and that that hopefully will help uh, inspire other artists. Um, Mm -hmm. They don't Mm -hmm. have to be picture book artists, artists of all sorts, printmakers. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, we, 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 we would, you know, we're always looking at different models and we really admire uh, the Dave Eggers model of uh, 826 Valencia, which Dave is a friend of Maurice's and uh, actually wrote the novel for Where the Wild Things Are based on the movie, along with Spike Jones. And, uh, you know, the whole idea that if there was a possibility of having a, a museum mentoring center where we could still carry on that 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 need and drive of ours to to let the work be used for educational purposes and and also to be seen by a a greater number of people, you know, and and my shameless plug here is going to be safe. Someone wants to donate us a huge building (laughs) and run a museum. Give us a call. (laughs) Right. Right. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't happen in, you know, where the house is now, but it would be great if it was close by, you know, kind of, when it doesn't have to be that huge. Doesn't right? have to. Nope, the work is small. <laughs> the work is small. Yeah. So. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, it's still very early days. I think people it is. kind of forget that it takes years and years to figure this out. I used to. Yeah. Um, uh, I've done various things with the O'Keefe Museum, and that took decades to right. turn that into. And they are also an O'Keefe Foundation. Very long process, and uh, yeah. and it has to be done very carefully and. Thoughtfully. Right. And, and, you know, we're our, our small staff, uh, you know, we, besides, you know, the, the thought of opening the house and having people come in and see it, it's just that would take away from our job, which is creating the books. <laughs> you know, we, we are constantly in the process of, of, you know, approving and, or, or disapproving uh, different projects or, or the art, the, the books are printed in 40 languages. So we're constantly getting, Proofs come in, and then we're supposed to, you know, look at these proofs, and it's 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 a it's really a, a a a gigantic job that is handled by by us, and it's um it would be nice that you know we would be able to be be able to show his original artwork more to the public because it's it, I think it's something that people are really clamoring to have happen. Uh, they it's it's just that you know they I don't think everybody who asks why we're not a museum takes into consideration that. You know our 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 limits of being pressed to what we can do um, in, with our limited amount of money and well, our limited amount. I mean, we right. Also, to, to put it in the positive sense, ten ten little rabbits exactly. really is yeah. the. I, you know, we keep saying the book art is the art. The books are the art, and yeah. that's what we have the greatest obligation to bring to the public. And 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 we are getting the art out in the in the in the exhibitions and shows and right. we're doing it bit by bit, slowly, slowly. 
slowly exactly it's uh it, but it's getting Hopefully. there for sure it's getting there <laughs> and and we're so appreciative to all the people that purchase the book or the libraries to get the book because you know we are a nonprofit and that's really what keeps us going is that when you buy the book you're you're helping you're helping the foundation um so it's it's you know it's it's uh it's it's a struggle but it's actually one of the the most most rewarding struggles you can imagine. Right, right. Oh, I, another thing that we're doing is we're partnering with other organizations. So, yeah, exactly. Lynn, talk about the yeah, Newtown. yeah. Um, uh, you know, Newtown is quite close to Richfield, and uh, we are 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 making a partnership. We're still in the early days of working with the Catherine Violet Hubbard Foundation, which is in here in Newtown where I live. And uh, you know, it's it's just this. They they have done so much with so little you know they they have uh, this really great volunteer base and uh they're uh, an organization that was uh created by the mother of one of the children that was lost at sandy hook and uh she, you know she's just amazing uh, uh she's jennifer hubbard she's uh they're, they're running programs through right now they just have the land and they're looking for ways to build this beautiful structure that will uh, that will house a library and a veterinary center and educational programs for children. And their whole their whole thing is to connect, um, you know, the bond between animals and nature to children and, and through through literacy, art and, and just exploration. So uh, that's that's one of the things that we are really proud to be connected to. And, uh, you know, because it, it really, really just hones in exactly how Maurice would have wanted us to to work with other organizations. And what would you say about Maurice's connections to Connecticut specifically? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, how Connecticut was so important to Maurice and his landscape around him and, and what he collected and the artists he collected and then used in his, his books um, often would have the same sort of landscape we have here, like Samuel Palmer with these open fields and 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 and. and it's like a dairy, you know, place where cows are and, you know, farms. And that doesn't sound too articulate, but Jonathan can talk about it better than well, I can. It's a gentle landscape. It's you a know? gentle landscape. It's, yeah. it's it's not spectacular. Like we don't have mountains, big mountains. I always think of Sleeping Giant, you know, which is a funny name for a kind of glorified hill, right? Like <laughs> somehow, right? somehow the mountain is sleeping. That's why it's not a big mountain, right? So, but that was something I think Maurice actually liked about it is that it was very, very sweet and and not sublime. It's not a sublime landscape, but it is it is New England, right? It looks it looks a lot like like England actually, and yeah. and I think that's something like woods and little hills and lots of green those things are very yeah. nice very comforting right, right not right. overwhelming right and, yeah not... when he would when he yeah exactly when the... he would walk down spring valley uh road near our house he would get towards towards the end and and there was a hill and he said that is that is dear millie's hill or this tree is ida's tree or this brook is is jenny's brook so he he connected with the artwork and the and the landscape around him right you, you can't imagine i can't imagine maurice going to like the grand canyon that was when i mean she, i'm sure he would go if he could but i don't think he ever did but i i, I don't think those were the, he wasn't like george o'keefe he didn't like you know grand empty spaces i think and, and if you look at his work, the spaces are very contained, actually. And and uh, there's a kind of 
they're like they're often spaces that look like you're seeing them through a window. I think yeah. I think some Maurice is the type of traveler who travels by reading books and looking at pictures a lot rather than having he didn't really like flying or traveling that much, you know, he liked to stay at home and be close. You've been listening to Lynn Caponera, who's the executive director at the Maurice Sendak Foundation, as well as Dr. Jonathan Weinberg, who's the curator and director of research at the Maurice Sendak Foundation. Stay with us through this quick break and let us know if Maurice's art has touched you. Join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're back with Lynn Caponera and Dr. Jonathan Weinberg from the Marie Sendak Foundation in Richfield. And we've been exploring Sendak's legacy, including his new posthumous picture book, Ten Little Rabbits. So I want to jump straight to it. You know, both Lynn and Jonathan, I'm sure you've heard from so many people whose lives were touched by Maurice's work. But I'm curious to hear, you know, what impact has Maurice had on both of you? Well, I mean, it's it's hard to describe the impact because it's it's your entire life, right? I mean, everything uh, during Maurice's lifetime uh, with us and afterwards is is with keeping Maurice Maurice alive in some way. Uh, you know, it's it's we're very very conscious of the fact that we don't own this work, <laughs> that this work belongs to everybody, that, uh, you know, very intimate and wonderful and tragic things happen in kids' lives and, and adults' lives where they connect it to these books when, I mean, Maurice used to describe that there is no, there is no better connection than a, a parent having a child sit on their lap and have that closeness when you start reading the book to them and you're turning the page and the sound of your voice and everything where the child just melts into your body and is so connected to you that I think people as adults, they see like wild things and they say, well, that is the book that connects me to my childhood or Higgledy Piggledy Pop connects me to a, there was a death in my family and they, mm -hmm. they can really resonate with the feeling of losing somebody you love. So, you know, we're, we're very, 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 careful to, un you know, to understand that everybody has a deep connection to Maurice's work, who owns Maurice's work, which is the book. Uh, I, it's, I, it's, I, I think it, it, it's, to me as an artist, one, one of the things that, that is so amazing about his work and how he worked was that he didn't, he didn't just sit around uh, waiting for in inspiration to strike. I think a lot of people think that because he, he's involved with children, that somehow his work just comes from his unconscious. And a lot of the writing about him emphasizes that and certainly had a connection to childhood. But he had this idea of emulation and he would immerse himself in other artists. He, he used to say, you know, that great artists steal from other artists. And mm -hmm. that's that is definitely true in his work. When he was having a problem coming up with some idea, 
he would look at um, uh, Samuel Palmer or William Blake or listen to the music of Mozart. And he would use that as the inspiration for coming up with his work. And he wasn't he wasn't caught up with the idea, oh, I'm just going to be I have to try to be original or he wasn't afraid of imitating somebody else. And and that was just a wonderful lesson, I think, as an artist to learn from him, which is just immerse yourself in the past. And that's the way to find your voice and the things that you love, the passion, you know, um, Pierre is perfect. You play that song. His books don't have obvious morals necessarily, um, except for except for Pierre. But what is the moral of Pierre? It is to care. It's not. Mm. It doesn't. It's not care about something specific, but be passionate about something. Immerse yourself mm-hmm. in something. Well, and I I think that was an incredible thing to grow up with. Uh, both. Both Maurice and Jean were obsessed with art. They loved art. Art was their salvation. Well, I think think seeing photos of the studio, you can clearly see that passion sort of ooze out of the images, you know, all the (laughs) knickknacks and the art, which I I mean, I love that kind of artistic chaoticness. (laughs) And and I love that both of you, both of you mentioned immersion and deep connection. And in fact, one of my favorite anecdotes that Maurice shared was how much he loves William Blake, as you mentioned, Jonathan, but he yes. sometimes couldn't quite put a finger on the why, uh, which I understand why. Um, and he also mentioned that, you know, there are works of Blake that he just couldn't understand, but he just loves him. And I really love that Maurice sort of accepts that he loves something that he couldn't quite understand, but he accepts yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, you right? know, it, it, it's wonderful about William Blake that you say that because... Because I also have difficulty understanding a lot of Blake poetry. Although Maurice loved um, and, and um, uh, uh, his his um, excuse me, um, I'm blanking on this book. Uh, uh, Songs of innocence. Song of in- innocence and experience. Sorry, yeah. Songs of innocence and experience, which is very direct and easy to understand, and and in some ways geared towards children, right? But. Um, but he, what he said is that he believed that Blake was involved in these ideas and concepts, and out of that came great art, right? So it's, again, you have to be, as you say, passionate about something, care care about something, and you let that love, really, your love for something, be your guide for how you mm-hmm. then make other art. I think that's yeah. that is something. And he wasn't snobby, right? It could be William yeah. Blake, but it also could be Disney. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. Right. And when we talked about, you know, how there's so much art and all kinds of art throughout his home, you know, you mentioned uh, Samuel Palmer, who's an English painter, as well as George Stubb, also a fellow English painter, and Winslow Palmer, uh, Winslow Homer who's an American painter and illustrator as right. well. But there's so many Mickey Mouse collectibles, which I also <laughs> love. I'm a big fan of knickknacks as well. And so can, I want, can you talk about the sort of very unique aesthetic of the home, you know, and also Maurice's many like knickknacks and talismans, as, as right. we talked right. about. And just a quick reminder for our listeners that you can check out those amazing images on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. But yeah, yeah, Lynn, you wanted to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, even, even Mickey Mouse um, is part of Maurice's uh, education on how to be a, a, an artist. Uh, where the wild things are, he, he would tell me, is, is, is the same proportions, a wild thing, is the proportions of Mickey Mouse. He's got a big head and a small torso and big feet and sort of lumbers around like a toddler. Because after, after all, you know, wild things really 
really are are big kids. You know, they're 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 not going to eat max. They're they're not ferocious, even though they're described as scary children. Children aren't scared by them. Um, adults max are, isn't scared of them. Max never isn't scared of them. Scared yeah. at all. Yeah. Mickey and in the night kitchen is never, never. scared. Yeah. Right? So 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 Maurice's Maurice's heroes in his books are really every kid that is looking at that book you know they're really they're, right. they're the connection that, that that ties you to that book i mean uh, i know, may or may not have cried when i when i saw Minnie mouse in disneyland when i was about three years old so i think i might have been a little freaked out <laughs> by, yeah, by yeah, Minnie yeah. mouse look i mean i'm one of those people who are scared of clowns you know right yeah right. I, I don't see how you could be scared of one of the wild things but exactly. clowns right. i think are yeah. clowns right exactly. are definitely scary i'm gonna have to dig out a picture of that because i was my yeah. my head was like nestled in my mom's shoulder because Minnie mouse just freaked me out so much but but I love that yeah. we we're talking about Mickey Mouse because Maurice had said previously that my best friend you know Mickey Mouse just happens to be a movie star and as we're talking about what a big role Mickey Mouse has played in Maurice's own life you know how did he approach creating characters with this idea of of intimacy and and friendship in mind because well, I think you, you know, know I, I I just want to jump in I, I, I yeah. also have Mike Harper Collins in my ear right now I'm thinking that we we should say something about ten, 10 little ten rabbits, little rabbits. right? Yeah. Which is new, but it's it's kind of perfect here because Maurice understood deeply that a very simple idea or character can express the world, really. Exactly. So you you take the story of ten little rabbits, and it's it's the simplest counting story, right? It's of of this magician who pulls one rabbit out of the hat, but then two rabbits come out. Then suddenly there are five rabbits pouring out and, and he's kind of lost control, right? He has to get the rabbits back into the hat. And that becomes, that's a whole allegory of the artist exactly, or of life, yeah. right? It's built into this little story. Right. And Mickey Mouse is like that, right? Mm -hmm. He's He's this insane, crazy head face that Maurice talks about. And yet at the same time, he has the same birth date as Maurice, right? So he's kind of an alter ego for Maurice, and and he has all these experiences, and and he's and he's as great a hero has you know a character in William Blake, right? He, right. Um, yeah. You know one of the, one of the things that I think Maurice also taught taught us was this idea of excellence. It doesn't matter if it's made for television or it's a, 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 a music like Carol King or it's Mozart. It all has to be done right with integrity and rigor, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, when, when Jonathan and I were growing up, we assumed that every picture bookmaker had all the styles that Maurice had. You know, they they, they had, you know, Maurice had, had multiple styles, like the same person who did A Hole is to Dig did Outside Over There. And you would lay these things out and never, you know, you would never think that, well, this is the same artist who did all of this work. Right. Uh, but you still know when you look at this work that it's Sendak. You understand that there's something about Maurice's line work that it, it just blares out to you that this is Maurice Sendak. And and that's how Ten Little Rabbits is. Ten Little Rabbits is simple and and it's a it's just a story that is is, you know, it's, it's as they say, it's a book about counting to ten and backwards again. But in that counting, you you get so much out of it. You you understand the emotions of a child and an artist and 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 just the being overwhelmed by life, but then it gets back into he he figures out how to Get it back, the chaos under control. And, right, and, right, which is yeah. which is the great theme of it, it, it's in outside over there. It's in it's in wild things, which mm -hmm. is what the artist does. He entertains you. He helps you 
deal with difficult situations, um, but also he has he does that with incredible humor and mm. joy, right? It's all right, right. it's such it's such a gift, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And and it reminds me it reminds me also that that Maurice's partner Eugene Glynn, he gave himself up in his life as a as a public um, psychiatrist. I mean, working in the public realm. Uh, to helping kids and adolescents. And so they were both really devoted mm -hmm. to the welfare of children, right? In, right. A, in, very, in a very different way. Uh, yeah, and, well, the, and the nur nurturing aspect, sorry, but the, yeah. uh, you know, like wild things, it's, it's not an accident that you don't see the mother, but right. you know that the mother is actually the anchor to that book. Right. She sends him to his room for not doing such a terrible thing, but Max comes home and his food is waiting there for him. She, right. he, so you know that the mother is actually the person that is this mentoring, loving aspect of it. And that's how Maurice's books are. And I think that's, that's really the secret of them is that people, people connect to the fact that he is, he is giving you this lovely place to come back to. A lot of Maurice's books are about going somewhere and coming right. back, you know, very far away, outside over there, where the wild things are. So it's, 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 it's not an underestimated thing to say that Maurice knew exactly what he was doing. These were not accidents. Right. Well, and, right. and I, I, I love that because, uh, you know, as both of you are describing his work, it, it reminds me of his his art. It makes me feel like it's like Linus's security blanket from Peanuts. You know, you can yeah. always come back to it. You get the comfort. And you both talked about, I think this is sort of a theme here, you know, the welfare of children and the nurturing and, and speaking about dealing with difficult situations through art as we've been talking about this hour you know we will be covering the topic of grief and loss in, in the coming weeks and how artists and authors can help us process through through those difficult right, times so, right, but it, you know it's interesting you say that because um I love peanuts but but um and also we, we could have a whole comparison because maybe it is true that Charlie Brown gets a little better as he goes along right <laughs> but but the, the poor boy uh, Maurice's her heroes go through a transformation. Right. They they grow up in a certain sense. They learn to separate themselves. And at the end, they're still loved. That's sort mm -hmm. of a theme in Maurice's, right? Where, right. Uh, right. You know, Max has a tantrum, but then he mm -hmm. goes to this place and he comes back and he and his mother accepts him for who he is in a in a wonderful way, right? He he has to. He has to be himself, right? He right. learns to sort of express himself, and yet his mother accepts him not because not because he's done some great, wonderful thing, right? But just for who he is, and that again and again is a theme that happens in Maurice's work. So we got about we got about two minutes left here, but I want to ask you both the last question. Um, I want to talk about how else would you each say Maurice was most misunderstood as an artist? We touched a little bit about it earlier, but we'll love to get a little deeper. We've got two minutes. Lynn, why don't we go for you first? Uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, the, the whole curmudgeon thing is nonsense, but, uh, but that <laughs> he, um, I, I guess that he misunderstood the fact that people really feel that it's easy to do a children's book. Mm. Uh, it is one of the hardest jobs in the world. And I, I you know, give so much uh, 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 encouragement to everybody out there who is creating children's books, who want to create books that make a, make a difference and they make an impact on a child's life and an adult's life. 
Jonathan, um, what do you think? Jonathan? Yeah, I, and I would, you know, he, he talked about his second career. He was an extraordinary artist. He did theater and opera sets and um you know he was he was just an amazing amazing range as as an artist so you know that was that was one of the things too that he that he, he would have wanted people to know but um uh, lind is very eloquent about his daily routine but um it, it's just this idea that it doesn't just come in a dream he he literally said that he he didn't dream up any of these things in the sense like it came to him in the middle of the night Wild Things took him 10 years to come up with a story right. that he reworked and rethought through outside over there years and years. Also, just that he had this kind of rigor of work, you know, a kind of routine where every day he would work for hours and hours. The crosshatching, for example, in Higgly Piggly Pop is so superb, so patiently done um, that it really is the more you you deal with the work and you see how he taught himself you know it's not it's not just that he had 10 different styles right is that he when he wanted to shift styles he had to learn to do that he had to figure out how to draw like a victorian artist or how to emulate um william blake it's not something that necessarily came easily to him and i think that's that's really important thing without without making it intimidating because he sort of his work gives you the key to how to do that how right, to right. how to study how to how to copy how to imitate well we want to thank both of you yeah. for sharing Maurice's rigor with us you've been listening to Jonathan Dr. Jonathan Weinberg curator and director of the research of research at the Maurice Sendak Foundation as well as Lynn Caponera who's executive executive director at the foundation oh. thank you both for being with us today and check out our images from from the the foundation at ctpublic.org/wherewelive I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our tech co-producer is Dylan Reyes. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.